for great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts. The TNT Shop is now open at tntradio.live. Good company and civilized debate with a premium on fun. Ross Cameron on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Well, good day, good evening, good morning. Welcome to the Ross Cameron Show, wherever you are on this beautiful little blue dot uh, we call Mother Earth. Indeed, it's a unique uh, day, the first Sunday of 2024, and I'm very pleased to have your company. So the question arises on a day pregnant uh, with unique possibilities. Um, what is our goal uh, for 2024? Do we believe in setting goals? Uh, do we have New Year's resolutions? If we do, I suppose now is the time uh, to declare them at least, to reflect on them. And... Uh, on that question, um, I am inclined to consult uh, the sages, and uh, I'm never offended by the advice of Aristotle, who said that man is a goal-setting animal and his life has no meaning unless he is reaching out and striving for his goals. So uh, Aristotle is in effect saying that it is um, natural to us. It is part of our DNA. It's part of our definition as a species that we have an impulse to set goals. And Aristotle was a student of species, over 500 of which are uh, lovingly, meticulously recorded in his history of animals. So he says setting goals is natural, if that's the case. If we accept his advice, as I'm inclined to, the question arises, well, what goal should we set? And uh, in that regard, I'm a little bit... Uh, influenced by René Descartes, whose uh, discourse on the method sets out René's method for how to answer a question or solve a problem, his four principles. But he's quite keen to make clear that he doesn't presume to legislate for others. He's just saying, well, this is the way that I do it. Uh, this is the way that I have found helpful. And so I suppose this opening rant is really more of a note to self than any presumed uh, advice to others. So once I accept that um, man is a goal-setting animal and that life certainly has more meaning, uh, if we are reaching for, striving for goals, uh, the question is what, uh, what should the goal be? And now, if we don't want to stray too far uh, from Aristotle, we might go to the opening sentence of the metaphysics, where he says, man, by his nature, seeks to know. Uh, it's an interesting uh, proposition. Um, all men by nature desire to know 
is uh, Aristotle's argument. Uh, there's not many sentences you can accurately finish that begin with all men. Uh, it's, it's obviously using it in an encompassing of, of, of both genders, humankind. All men desire to know. And, and I think that's consistent with my own experience that there is something about the human brain where we see phenomena around us. There is a desire uh, for an explanation, a desire to understand the relationship between the effect and its cause. So we have uh, one goal uh, is to know and sticking uh, with Aristotle, uh, he goes so far as to say that the difference between an educated and an uneducated life is the difference between the living and the dead. <laughs> so he, he doesn't muck around. He doesn't mince his words. He's really saying that to be human uh, is to desire to know. And if you fail to fulfil that desire, um, you're not really living at all. And I guess one of the reasons why I'm attracted to wisdom, knowledge, uh, learning for my 2024 is it is one of the things which remains within our control. And uh, if we go to Epictetus, uh, the great Greek slave philosopher, uh, said there were only five things that you can truly own. Uh, all of the others can be taken from you. Your reputation can be taken from you. Your possessions can be taken from you. Your health will eventually be taken from you. Indeed, we know it in this massive spike in or cause mortality and uh, turbocharged cancers um, that many of us uh, are facing uh, loss of health. So the question is, what are those elements within our control? Epictetus says there's five things you can own, and according to the Greek slave, only five. They are uh, what you think, uh, what you do, what you choose, what you desire, and what you fear. Uh, in my case, um, I was more fearful uh, of the COVID drugs than I was uh, of the virus, and uh, I stuck to my fear hierarchy and uh, so pleased uh, that I did, not wanting to boast or rub it in. Um, but <clears throat> what it means is that the search for knowledge, for understanding, is within our control. And indeed, the fact that we can um, own, if you like, our own understanding is a matter which has been reflected on by some of the great uh, thinkers and philosophers, some of the sages and the wise men. If we go back to bias of prying, one of the seven sages of Greece, indeed some debate, some say uh, there was only five, but even if there were only five, uh, bias still makes the list. But bias said to cherish wisdom as a 
companion uh, from youth to old age because no possession can be more secure. Uh, it's really, uh, Epictetus is really echoing bias uh, in the sense that he's saying, this is something that can't be taken from you. Uh, this is an investment uh, you can make that you know will stick with you uh, until your last breath. Now, that is not to say among the other uh, worthy objectives, goals, uh, ambitions we might have for 2024, that the basic duties each of us possess to help sustain ourselves and our family um, can't be uh, avoided. Indeed, uh, Seneca would say he spent some part of every day uh, as a husband to his own uh, fortune. And as Cambyses led his son Cyrus on horseback to the border when Cyrus was leading an army in battle for the first time, the father sort of interrogated the son on his plans. And one of the questions he asked him was, what provision have you made for the resources, the cash required to run this operation? Because he said, it's no good having the best battle plan in the world if you run out of money. So there are other things we must obviously do, but in the in the discretionary moments, in the free time where we are talking about the element Epictetus calls what you choose, uh, I am choosing to continue a process of self-education. And uh, Indeed, Marcus Aurelius uh, refers to this same sort of um, asset when he says that the mind freed from passions is an impenetrable fortress and a person has no more secure place of refuge for all time. It's a pretty big call. Uh, no more secure place of refuge than your own mind. And uh, Marcus, in that context, was talking about how so many of his rich friends talk about how they just wish they could get away to their sort of cottage or palace, as the place may be, on the Dalmatian coast. Or, um, but they're always longing to be somewhere else. Uh, but Marcus, uh, who had no shortage of palaces, said that the most impenetrable fortress uh, is a man's mind. And um, so I think that uh, there is something uh, unchangingly satisfying about growing in your knowledge and understanding of the world in which you live, uh, whether it be its language, uh, its history, its literature, its art, its poetry, its culture, its recipes. Um, um, Epictetus says that it is the mark of a want of genius if a person is overly preoccupied with matters of the body, uh, what we eat and drink, uh, the uh, fulfilment of other bodily functions, um, uh, 
he says the objective must be to create maximum space to, quote, care for the understanding. And I'm often a bit surprised by people whom I respect uh, when I ask them their views on a range of subjects, whether it be the uh, debunked theory of man-made climate change um, or, um, you know, the origins of the war, uh, the special military operation in Ukraine. Or, um, you know, I find a often relatively weak relationship between the strength of the opinion and the study of the facts. And so while uh, we're all guilty of it, uh, none of us are perfect, and I certainly don't claim in any way uh, to be a scholar, uh, but like G.K. Chesterton, uh, who is a modern author worth reading in his essay, The Everlasting Man, he talks about one of his great critics, George Bernard Shaw, uh, with whom he fundamentally disagrees. And the book, uh, The Everlasting Man, is largely a response to Shaw's atheism. But um, Chesterton asserts the right of the amateur uh, to do what he can with the facts the experts provide. And in the end, uh, I likewise assert that right. I don't claim any special level of scholarship or indeed of intelligence, but the right of the amateur uh, to study the facts as, as we have them, uh, as imperfect as they may be, and to form one's own judgments and conclusions. So then if, if we then agree, if I agree with myself, you know, as I often do, <laughs> um, you know, that I wish to grow in knowledge, in wisdom, in learning, in understanding, the question is, well, and how? You know, what, is, what is the next step? How, how do we do this? And on that question, I would only make a couple of uh, brief observations, uh, one of which comes from uh, Saul Alinsky and John Simon of Aussie Home Loans in equal parts. Saul Alinsky in Rules for Radicals. He was the guy whom Hillary Clinton wrote her master's thesis on and which she worked assiduously to prevent from publication for about 20 years, uh, as one might. Uh, Saul Alinsky being one of the most disastrously uh, destructive uh, individuals of the 20th centuries, but no doubt brilliant. But in his rules for radicals, one of them was uh, choose tactics your followers will enjoy. And I think there's something to be learned uh, from that. Indeed, Mark Hornshaw, the vice president of the Libertarian Party in New South Wales, when I interviewed him recently, he's a uh, authority on home education and he says, well, we spend the sort of three hours uh, doing the uh, curriculum, then we spend three hours where I give my charge permission to do anything they love, uh, which will also enhance their education. And he says, because it's vitally important that the student should acquire a love for learning rather than merely a fear of punishment or a sense of uh, compulsion. And 
uh, Ozzie John Simon, I recall, uh, when I had the benefit of a private tour of his magnificent palace, Wingerdale in Point Piper. Uh, I noted the um, Art Deco theme of the joint from the cutlery to the plate where, uh, to the statuary, and I asked him about his uh, love of the Art Deco. And he, he said to me, well, look, my view is that, uh, you know, he said, I'm basically, a, you know, a Lebanese kid from the western suburbs of Sydney. Uh, he said, but um, I loved... Um, art and in particular i found myself drawn to the art deco style of both architecture painting statuary etc and he said my advice to you is you should never try and uh set yourself a goal of learning about art because the cause is just too big the horizon too wide and he said what you must do is find one piece of the puzzle that you love and study that piece and then grow, if you like, out from the things you love. The other things I would, uh, the other reflection I would make is that in the process of learning, uh, there is nothing uh, more compelling, and we can go back to Aristotle's thoughts on education in a moment, we might do in conclusion, but the most uh, efficient way to learn is to write. Um, one learns from reading. We learn something from, say, watching a television show, but I think the least efficient form of learning, the most passive form, reading a book significantly escalates the capacity of the human mind to recall. And then, uh, but however, the Rolls-Royce is actually writing it down, writing down your reflections. And uh, John Stuart Mill in his autobiography talks about his daily long walks with his father, where he would, before he left on the walk and over the course of the previous day, write down all of the things that he had learnt and consult his notes. And when he went to talk to his father, he spoke to him from his own notes of his own learning and the so-called commonplace book, which was uh, a feature of the learned in particular in the 18th and 19th centuries, where people wrote down uh, the lessons that they were learning, I think is a practice very uh, greatly to be encouraged. Um, Aristotle said that all that is required for an education is intelligence, study and repetition. You must uh, go back to it again. And John Stuart Mill in the autobiography says that he read, uh, he records all of about 100 books that he read and that influenced his thinking. And uh, in each one of them, he had written essays and reflections uh, to his father, his tutor. But he said some of them I read several times. And indeed, he said uh, Alexander Pope's translation of Homer's Iliad I read 20 or 30 times. Uh, he could virtually produce it uh, from memory. So uh, pick something you love. Um, don't be afraid of repetition. Uh, write things down. Uh, Ross Cameron's goal for 2024 is to grow in wisdom, uh, learning and understanding. Uh, if you've got a different goal, feel free to call in on the callback line. You're on The Ross Cameron Show. Welcome to 2024. 
We'll be right back. TNT Radio's Patrick Henningsen. There's a dark cloud which is gathering over Ukraine. This has been an absolute disaster. In the last month alone, as I reported previously, Ukraine's lost 13,000 troops in October. So what does that mean? Well, you can guess that recruitment is probably down. So right now, the government in Kiev, the Zelensky government's doing forced conscription. Morale is at an all-time low. Uh, we've also seen conscientious objectors uh, who are taking to social media like Telegram who reported uh, that they were just finished a six-month prison sentence uh, after refusing to go to the front line. Some of the forced conscripts rebelled, were imprisoned for six months, did a six-month sentence, and then the day before their release, they were put into a van and then sent to the front line. I kid you not. Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk TNT Radio. The Light is Britain's far-right conspiracy theory paper spreading hate and vicious lies. No, that's what the BBC say. The Light is the only national newspaper bringing you the real news and informed opinion on what's really going on today. You can subscribe, order copies, submit articles, and read back issues on our website, thelightpaper.co.uk, and see for yourself why the establishment are so worried about the uncensored truth getting out to people every month. They've launched a new service called Wake Up Your Neighbours, where you can get copies delivered to the streets right around you if you don't want to do it yourself. The Light Paper. Not for right, just right so far. Thelightpaper.co.uk I want to say this, and I'm going to say it just once. This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Well, welcome back. You're on The Ross Cameron Show. And it's my pleasure to introduce my first guest of the year, Melissa Albacetti, uh, who first really came to prominence in Australia as a guest speaker at the Friedman Conference. I think it was last year where she gave a kind of breakout performance that everyone was talking about. Uh, Melissa is originally an Argentine, uh, but now a, an emigre to Australia, Adelaide in particular, uh, where she is a permanent resident, uh, productively employed, uh, but who retains a passion for Argentina. And I think, uh, where which is a fascinating place at the moment because of its brand newly minted libertarian president, Javier Millet, who is really uh, setting uh, the joint on fire. Uh, Melissa Albacetti, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Ross. Thank you for having me on the show. It's a pleasure. Now, tell me, Melissa, do you describe yourself as a libertarian? Yes, I'm a libertarian. Yes, I'm a libertarian. It's truly libertarian, probably libertarian. And also, um, I'm an Australian too, not okay. a permanent resident anymore. Uh, very good. Congratulations. Well, um, that's you. certainly uh, tick one uh, for Australia. We have a new asset on the team. Um, <laughs> so let's say you just meet uh, someone in the Rundle Mall uh, when you're on your way to get a cappuccino, you sit down on the bench and um, you're wearing your Javier Malay uh, or Libertarian Party app. And somebody says to you, who has no no idea, what is a Libertarian? What does Libertarian mean? Can you give us the uh, sort of two-minute tutorial for the uninitiated? Wow. Well, um to be to be a libertarian um, basically is um, 
to respect people's life uh, entirely, um, to, to be honest. Um, so to me, libertarianism is a philosophy uh, that upholds the idea that an individual's life belongs to themselves and as such their lives should not belong to anyone else. So uh, this philosophy promotes unrestricted respect for the lives of others and their projects. And it recognizes the, the equal dignity of all human beings. So the libertarian philosophy promotes an unwavering respect for life, liberty, and private uh, property in people and sees them as ends in themselves and never as means to be used coercively to satisfy the ends or needs of others. That's what I think libertarianism is. Okay, so what was your, I mean, the the Apostle Paul of Tarsus uh, began life as an Orthodox Jew, but had an experience on the Damascus Road that caused a complete conversion. Uh, tell us how you arrived at this libertarian philosophy as your own kind of style. Well, let me tell you something. Thanks to the market, mm. thanks to YouTube, unbelievable. Um, I went to uni in Argentina, and as you may know, um, uh, when you go to uni, in, of course in Australia too, but especially in Argentina and Latin America, you are forced to read left-wing authors. Um, so I was not exposed to liberalism or libertarianism at all at university. So after finishing university, um, I was watching YouTube and one of my favorite political scientists, um, a Latin American, Gloria Alvarez, she's from Guatemala, um, was a video popping up and I saw her talking about libertarianism and, and liberal ideas. Um, and I fell in love immediately. There was something in me that really wanted that, but I couldn't you know, put the pieces together. Uh, and after seeing that, I started to read more libertarian authors and liberal authors. And and last year, not last year, 2022, I ended up doing my diploma in Austrian economics. Um, so, yeah, thanks to the market, thanks to Gloria Alvarez, to all the libertarian influencers. There's plenty in Latin America, thanks God. Um, this is why, especially younger generations, um, understood what liberalism and libertarianism is. So if I continue sort of down the rabbit hole uh, before uh, on the Melissa sort of intellectual biography, um, who were some of the authors who, uh, some of the others who influenced your thinking, some of the books, some of the thinkers who shaped your libertarian soul? Um, we can we can say Hayek misses, but definitely I'm I'm really inclined to say young Latin American authors like Axel Kaiser. Probably you don't know about him, but he's a brilliant, brilliant mind. Um, and 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 Gloria Alvarez too. Um, they are they are both one two of my favorite libertarian authors. Um, and um, yeah, that that that's that's what I can say. And they are they are amazing. Okay, so if we um, require you to work, uh, you know, as our 
tutor on this subject. You mentioned uh, Friedrich Hayek and Ludwig von Mises, or Mises. Uh, you can tell us what is more uh, accurate. I mean, you studied the Austrian School of Economics. Uh, can you give us a two-paragraph summary of the Austrian School? Yeah, well, the Austrian School of Economics uh, started with von Weber. I don't know how to pronounce it properly, probably in English, sorry about that. Um, but it's basically uh, that the school doesn't want to regulate uh, the economy at all. It's basically guided by the human action. Um, and, and, and yeah, they, they understand that as a, um, like the individuals have the right to pursue their goals in lives without any government intervention. Um, so part of, I think, they try to promote is, um, like libertarians, and especially the, the, this school of economics oppose government control of, of the economy. Uh, and, and they understand that progress is the act of uh, discovering what we do not yet know, um, discovery that can only occur in spaces of profound freedom that allowed people to experiment, make mistakes and learn by exploring and perfecting the diversity of talents and, and abilities uh, that they possess. Um, so intellectual and spiritual wealth that, that human possesses flourish only when they are free to display their uniqueness. And, and this type of school of economics is what, this is what they want to achieve. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I feel very, um, aligned in, in those sort of ways. So you are, uh, notwithstanding the fact that you have become an Australian citizen, uh, I think it's fair to say you did, you, you, you have been a sort of a fairly patriotic Argentine. I mean, you have loved your country of origin and birth. Um, why don't you tell us something about Argentina? Uh, because on my recent uh, trip there, uh, for which I thank you for your assistance, um, you know, I was talking to the taxi driver on the way back to the airport to return home, and he made the observation, learning I was an Australian, that the Argentine and the Australian economies were actually very similar, but sort of analogous from about 1880 to 19. 30 or 40, when they took a significant departure. Um, well, can you give our audience just a little synopsis of Argentina uh, from an economic standpoint over the last sort of century and a bit? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we need to understand that Argentina is the most Western nation in Latin America. Um, but it has faced um, a century of decline marked by collectivist, socialist, and, and fascist ideas gaining traction. Um, so before the First World War and between 1895 and 1896, um, in terms of, um, uh, from the economic point of view, Argentina achieved like the highest average annual growth rate in world history, sustaining um, a remarkable 6% for uh, nearly 50 years and, and becoming the wealthiest country in the world. Uh, at that time, millions of Europeans left, left their home countries to, to the promised land of Argentina 
to an extent that by 1914, half of the inhabitants of Buenos Aires were foreign born. You might have seen that Buenos Aires has a resemblance of Paris uh, or Madrid. Um, so that happened. And, and, and unfortunately, at the end of 1929, uh, beginning of 1930, specifically, and after that, 1943, Peronism knocked at the door, uh, which is uh, populism um, in Argentina. Uh, for those who are unfamiliar with Peronism, so it is crucial to understand that this ideology plays a central role in elucidating the misfortunes of my nation. So Peronism derives um, its name from Juan Perón, the leader of the Justicialist Party. And Juan Perón was both a fascist and a very close associate of Benito Mussolini. And his aim was to ignite nationalist passions and promote anti-American policies, all of which were executed through systematic indoctrination. So Argentina's current economic model is not purely socialism like Venezuela's, but it's rather a mix of private industry, heavily regulated and subsidized, like resembling the Nazi corporatist model. Um, Peronism influenced uh, by, by fascist ideas transformed Argentinian culture and institutions like a century ago, like similar uh, to the takeover we see in the Western countries today. So we, we faced that 100 years ago. Um, and, and yeah, Peronism introduced ideas like socialism, Keynesian ideas, um, leading to a decline in Argentina's per capita income. Uh, we are facing, unfortunately, um, a high inflation rate, uh, which is about 150%, uh, with 50% of the population living below the poverty line. And, and what Millet, our president, efforts um, aims to reverse this decline and restore Argentina's past prosperity. Okay, um, very good. Well, um, it seems to me that Australia today is sort of the square root of Argentina in the sense that yeah. we have adopted the collectivist, uh, Peronist, um, you know, everyone is responsible for everything, but no one is accountable for anything. Um, and we are on a pretty rapid slide uh, down the same path, seemingly unable to learn, unable to observe the impact uh, of these policies in other places. Uh, but you mentioned your experience at university where I don't mind students reading uh, left-wing authors, but I want them to be able to read libertarian uh, and Austrian economists uh, as well. Right. Uh, but our universities like Argentina's have become one hand clapping. Uh, they are really indoctrination factories rather than places of learning. And they are simply spitting out uh, very poorly educated, but intensely passionate uh, young people. Uh, and uh, the consequences in the policy direction of government um, are fairly clear. 
Now, I am going to get you uh, to talk a bit more about Javier Millet. Uh, My producer is telling me we should take a short break. Uh, So we are with Melissa Albacetti, the charming, the erudite, the instructive. Uh, We'll be right back. When a crisis hits close to home and across the globe, nonprofits are on the front lines ready to serve. The demand for charitable services has skyrocketed, and nonprofits are rising to meet the needs. Healing. Nurturing. Rescuing. Honoring. Protecting. Caring. Inspiring. The work of philanthropic organizations of all sizes, across all missions, has never been more important. And it's donors and volunteers like you who make all this possible. Thank you. Together, we change the world. The Nonprofit Alliance. Sometimes life can be overwhelming, and suicide may seem like the only way to relieve the pain. Beyond Now is an evidence-based app created by Beyond Blue to help you cope when suicidal thoughts start to appear. You can use it to create an easy-to-follow plan that is personal to you and includes steps like know your warning signs so you can act early, make your environment safe by removing harmful items, activities you can do or people you can be with to distract yourself from suicidal thoughts, reminders of things that make you feel strong, Some of these steps might be tough to fill out, and that's okay. It can be helpful to make or share your safety plan with a trusted friend, family member, or mental health professional. You might feel like you're alone, but help is available. If you're worried you can't stay safe, use the red telephone icon to call your emergency contacts. Download the free Beyond Now app today to create your personal safety plan. The issues that matter to you and questioning the facts. Ross Cameron on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. You're in conversation with Ross Cameron and Melissa Albacetti from Adelaide via Buenos Aires and the Austrian School of Economics. We're talking about Javier Millet, the uh, irascible, charismatic, emphatic, at times crude, um, but absolutely granite-like commitment uh, to change Argentina. Uh, Melissa, tell us, I mean, you must have been, as a as a committed, rusted-on libertarian believer, you must have been excited when one of the world's uh, most extraordinary libertarians got elected president of Argentina. Yes, indeed. Indeed, I was, um, I was, it was shocking to me um, because we always had hope. Um, but, uh, you know, Argentina was always a very socialist country uh, or very government interventionist country. We never thought that a libertarian outsider could win the presidency of Argentina. Uh, it's like, I know, um, um, a Catholic, you know, running Saudi Arabia if they have elections, um, something like that. Um, so, um, yeah, I'm amazed. 
Tell me, tell and, us your impressions of Harvey Amelay as, I mean, I, I have my own, but I'm interested in yours. How do you describe him as a male, as a human being? What kind of a bloke is Javier Millet? I think Javier Millet, he's a very honest man. He's uh, outspoken. Um, he is, and I said, as I said before, he's very honest. He's delivering what he has promised so far. Um, so for people who don't know about Javier Millet, he's, and probably your audience will know that, but he was always an, an unconventional libertarian um, economist, um, like started appearing on TV shows and, and social media platforms uh, discussing the works of Hayek, Mrs. Rothbard, Friedman. Um, and, and this marked um, like the onset of the libertarian wave in Argentina. But to be honest, it, it was not a wave. It was, it was a tsunami. And, and I think like the ongoing political decline in Argentina, um, the increase in poverty, inflation, identity politics, you know, all the left-wing agenda, and unfortunately, the, the emigration of um, our best minds have led to the exhaustion of the Argentine society uh, and a society entirely uh, devoid of hope turn its gaze uh, towards uh, a political outsider. Um, and, and, and that was Javier Millet. So it was, um, if I can describe him, um, he has an engaging charisma uh, rooted in a profound sense of uh, rageous anger, coupled with a touch of madness. Um, he's a unique he's a unique blend captured um, the, the attention of the media at that point and, and, and later ignited a social media frenzy that that would have that happens in Argentina. So from Twitter uh, and Facebook to YouTube, TikTok, he's present like spread like wildfire. It's interesting, uh, on my visit to Buenos Aires, uh, one of the people whom I and my travelling companion, John Ruddick, met uh, was Professor Ivan Kachanowski, uh, who is a um, lecturer, a professor in economics at one of Buenos Aires universities and uh, a friend to you, as I understand it. Very and good. I asked uh, Professor Kachanovsky if he were uh, to describe Millet's personality, uh, what does he think is its sort of defining feature? And he said Millet is just one of those rare human beings who cannot lie. And uh, we have seen this personality from time to time. It's very rare to find, especially in politics, but... Uh, it was said of George Washington uh, that he was of this same sort of disposition, that he could not say something deliberately knowing it to be untrue. And Kachanowski just says he, he doesn't really have that sort of filter of wanting to convert uh, reality into some more acceptable version, but it just comes out unfiltered and straight. And um, I recall... Um, you know, when discussing, speaking about his frank language, uh, when he described the Pope Francis as a, quote, F-ing communist, 
uh, <laughs> and when uh, sort of challenged uh, by some of his critics about the needs of the state, uh, when he was talking about the needs of the citizens and the, they said, well, what about the needs of the state? And he said on live television, uh, you can shove the state up your ass. Uh, well, fairly graphic, clinical, uh, but I suppose a part of this, you talk about a sort of righteous anger combined with this unfiltered honesty, um, a bit shocking, uh, but has obviously resonated. And apparently you talk about the social media friends. I mean, young people in particular have gotten behind the Malay dream. That is that is correct. Um, I think he resembles the society at the moment. Um, Argentine society is completely fed up with traditional politics. Uh, and I think they found in Javier Millet the perfect person they can resemble with. Um, to me, um, he he's a person that he's driven by ideas rather than a pursuit of power. And, and of course, he stands out for his eccentricity. Uh, but uh, from my point of view, his success is predominantly attributed uh, to his accurate economic prediction over the last seven to eight years. Not only that, but also his his honesty, and because he was very, very uh, outspoken also. Um, so I think he ticked all the boxes, and that's why people, you know, chose him over the Peronists. Finally. So when you when you say he is doing what he promised, um, give us some of the. I mean, it's only been a month or so. I mean, I'm not sure exactly how. I can't recall the exact date of the inauguration. It's I should been a be, month. It's been a month. Um, yeah. What tell us? Tell us about date uh, of the inauguration. It's I should. Been be, a month. It's been a month. Um, yeah. What tell us? Tell us about. Uh, I've been. I've been sort of got you know half an eye to Argentina day to day. I've seen significant protests, uh, which frankly I regard as a good sign. It's not business as usual, but how would you describe the practical sort of steps the government of Malay has taken in its first four weeks? Yeah. So um, once he started um, his presidency, um, he he made some reductions, in specifically in ministries secretariats, uh, subsecretariats, and the number of government officials. So in the previous government, we had 18 ministries. Now we have nine ministries. Um, key review of the state uh, contracts initiated. So no more official advertising contracts for up to one year. No renewal of state employment contracts with less than one year validity. Uh, he revised the uh, review of contracts with universities, uh, review of contracts with the state workforce, uh, something really important that he has been promising during his campaign was the minimization of discretionary transfers to other provinces in Argentina. Uh, in, in that particular case, um, national government will not be in, on new public work projects, uh, cancellation of all approved but not yet started public works project, which is amazing. 
uh, reduction in energy and transportation subsidies. He started with that. And then after that, a couple of days later, he and his cabinet create a new package of laws and, and what is called a decree of necessity, necessity and urgency. Um, and this is an extraordinary liberalization of the Argentinian economy. Um, so uh, this package of, of economic liberalization is aimed to unleash basically the productive and wealth generating potential of, of Argentina. What he's doing is he's repeating over 300 laws and uh, that limited the productive potential of, of Argentina and modified others. Um, so at this point, I'll give you a couple of examples, but uh, the rental law, he repealed the rental law, um, the supply law, the um, shelf supermarket law, national purchase law, industrial promotion law. If you want me, I can go through them. What was the uh, what was this? Tell us what was the shelf supermarket law? Most bizarre law you have ever heard in your life. So repealed. It, it is funny, but it's repealed to stop the state from uh, meddling in the decisions of Argentine merchants. Uh, so the law forced supermarkets to ensure that no brand took up more than thirty percent of the space on the same shelf which only increased the operating cost of supermarkets and, of course, uh, ended up making the same products more expensive. That, so keep going. I saw a, I think it was a Twitter image of Malay standing beside this massive pile of documents and there was like a one-word piece of legislation and the one word was repeal. <laughs> that was the whole law. You know, all these things are gone. Correct, correct. So uh, something that the rental law, for example, that law has been approved more than three years ago in the Congress, and it disrupted the rental market completely. Uh, and and all the congressmen, uh, deputies and senators couldn't even agree on repeal it or make it better. I mean, it has to be repealed. Um, so repeal to enable the supply um, of rental housing to in increase, you know, again. So the law uh, establish a, a minimum term of the housing lease contract of years, making it impossible to agree um, on on the rental contract in dollars. For example, it only it only authorizes updating the rent according to inflation every six months, uh, potentially eating up, you know, a semester of uh, very high inflation. And, and dilution of the real value of the rental income, repeal. And, um, and that's what he did. And, and now we can see that there are more, more houses uh, being offered in the market at the moment. So it, it, it is definitely, it is working. Yes. Well, um, I, the, who have yeah. been the most angry? I mean, I saw a protest of bankers uh, in their pinstripes uh, walking down the streets of Buenos Aires. Um, I understand the unions are not thrilled with the new administration. So where is the strongest resistance coming from? Unions, definitely unions um, and social organisations. 
but specifically unions because they don't want to lose their privileges. Um, so actually what's happening after the decree, uh, Millet and, and his team had sent um, a new package of, of um, you know, laws to the Congress. Um, and it's going to repeal over 300 laws that he cannot do it by himself. He has to go through through the Congress. Um, and yes, yeah, so the, the the labor regime, it's been in one in, in the decree. And, and it says there's, that he wanted to modify the law updated to facilitate the process of job creation. Um, so the cost of this measle uh, is reduced uh, and, and the possibility of um, agreeing on a higher testing period is increased. Um, and and the um, attractivity of collective agreements is limited. Um, and of course, the unions were mad about that. And unfortunately, what has happened is that the National Chamber of Labor Appeals um, has suspended the labor chapter of the decree of necessity and urgency issued issue by, by the national government. Um, and the court... Um, has ordered to suspend the application of of the measure as it could put, that's what they said, the labor security of millions of workers at risk. Clearly, they don't know how how uh, economics works. So, so this political movement has been played by the most powerful union in Argentina. Um, and, and they don't want, as I said before, they don't want to lose their, their, their privileges. I can okay. I can go through that. The privileges is basically they force withholding of workers' contribution to unions was eliminated. That's what the law, the new law wanted. So allowing for greater freedom, you know, and, and, and positive impact on workers' paychecks. Penalties for employers were eliminated in the case of poorly registered labor relations. Uh, the presumption of existence of um, an employment relationship was modified. Uh, making it easier for employers to hire people without fear uh, or, or, or future labor trials. That's what's happening in Argentina, uh, among others. So, um, and of course, they rejected that. They used the justice um, to stop that. Well, look, there's no, um, you know, they say you can't make an omelette without cracking a few eggs. And any time uh, someone is attempting real reform, I mean, lots of things are described as reforms, uh, which in my judgment are very far uh, from a reform. But look, we've basically got one minute before a hard break at the top of the hour. Melissa, what do you, is, what do you say is the hope or the lesson of Millet beyond Argentina? Is there a relevance to this radical Javier Malay for the Australia and the rest of the world? You've got 40 seconds. Take it away. Uh, I think the outcome is relevant for the entire Western world because Argentina's situation, characterised by collectivism, wokeism and anti-capitalist mindset, is rare. So Malay's victory is, is a kind to an improbable event. As I said before, it's like a Christian winning Saudi Arabia elections if they had elections. So if Millet succeeds, it could set the stage for a transformation, not only in the developing world, but also in the developed world. And I think Australia 
should be following that. Melissa Albacetti, thank you so much for joining the Ross Cameron Show. You are an adornment uh, to the mind. Uh, bless you. Go well. We look forward to your return. Ladies and gentlemen, we break now for the news and return right after you're on the Ross Cameron Show.